Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I am here today with Dan Barish to talk about his new book, Learning to Rule, Court Education and the Remaking of the Qing State, 1861 to 1912. Welcome to New Books, Dan, and thank you so much for finding the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me, for the invitation, and for taking the time to read and talk about my book. I really appreciate it. Of course. So why don't we start, as is traditional on the channel at the beginning, with your beginning. So how did you come to work on Chinese history and the history of the Qing specifically? Yeah, you know... It's actually something uh, that I'm asked a lot in the context of teaching. Students <laughs> want to know. Students want to know why do you study this? Um, and even though I've been asked it uh, many, many times, I don't have a fantastic answer other than I started studying Chinese language um, and fell in love with it and was fascinated by it, um, and so kept taking classes in it and loved my teachers and their courses. Um, And so by the time I was graduating college, um, really most of what I had done in college was study Chinese, study language, studied abroad in China, Um, but not much else. I hadn't studied much history. Uh, And so one of my uh, professors, my advisor, uh, when we were talking about what I should do after college, he said, well, just move to China. And I said, to do what? And he said, it doesn't matter. And I thought... (laughs) And, and I thought that was supremely cool advice. Um, and so I did. Uh, I moved to, to China after graduating college and worked a variety of different jobs. You know, I taught English like many people. I worked for a film company. I worked for a tech startup. I worked for magazines and newspapers trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and it was while I was living in China, having spent a lot of time studying Chinese language, that I really got interested in history and in particular the ways in which China talked about and thought about and presented its own history. Um, And so I decided that I wanted to study that more formally. Uh, And so I came back uh, to the U.S. uh, first for a master's and then eventually for the Ph.D. uh, to study the thing formally that I had been seeing uh, used in really interesting, creative, sometimes confusing ways while I was living in China, uh, having followed my teacher's advice to move there with no plan. Fabulous. I'm glad that you were, you know, in your description there, you're talking about how, you know, China uses its own history and tells her own history. And that actually feeds in a little bit here with, you know, the idea of history being something that is used and called upon and sort of reimagined. Mm. Um, So that sets us up actually really beautifully to move (laughs) a little closer um, to this book. And in thinking about this as a book, so this book is based on your doctoral dissertation, um, and you do talk a little bit about in the beginning and the acknowledgments um, about, you know, the various different people who sort of helped this, you know, turn into a book. Um, I noticed in particular that you you say in the acknowledgments, you spent many years researching and writing, but that didn't necessarily prepare you for the book process. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this a little bit. Was there anything that sort of most surprised you about that process? Was there anything, you know, advice that you were given that you would pass on? Is there anything that you sort of want to mark about that, that transformation? Yeah, you know, it's such a it's such a great question because this book and the dissertation that it came from, probably like many of us, started out as an entirely different project. I don't know if we want to talk about that, uh, but um, this was not the, the dissertation or the book that I was planning on writing. And, you know, so the dissertation had a lot of trying to figure out what I was trying to say in it, still in its final form, um, you know probably much to the chagrin of my uh, advisors. Um, And so a big part of going from dissertation to book was trying to think about, well, what really am I trying to say here? What really is important rather than the dissertation, which was a lot of, well, here's all the work I've done Mm -hmm. over the past five years living in archives and uh, proving to you that I, uh, you know, read the sources. But 
why do they matter and what do they really say? Um, and so a couple of the pieces of, it, pieces of advice that I got when I was making that transition that I think were incredibly valuable. The first one was to stick it in a drawer for a year. To, to, leave, to leave it alone and to get some critical distance from it. Um, because, you know, when you're writing the dissertation, um, you're laboring over every sentence. Um, and uh, I think sort of the, the way it was described to me as I was uh, receiving this advice was, you know, it's your baby and it can be uh, really uh, painful to cut and to edit because you remember all of the the work that went into crafting each sentence. Um, and so putting it in a drawer for, for a year, getting some critical distance from it really um, made the process of editing and particularly of cutting and just uh, deleting massive chunks of pages. The dissertation has full chapters that aren't in the book. Um, uh, it made that process much less painful. Um, mm -hmm. So, so the first sticking in a drawer and getting distance. Um, but the second piece of advice um, that I got, which was wonderful, was to send the dissertation to your dream readers, the the people in your field who you know aren't on your committee, but whose advice that you would just really love um, about how to make it uh, into a book. Um, maybe people you've never met. And when I heard that advice, I was a little scared. I was like, but why would anyone read my dissertation? They don't know me. Um, but I followed the advice and I sent it to uh, top scholars in the field who I didn't know and who didn't know me and was blown away by their generosity and the fact that they read it and took the time to give me really wonderful feedback and advice um, about how to make it into a book that uh, would be of interest, perhaps, uh, to people outside of you know my small dissertation committee. So, I think those were the the two major um, pieces of advice that I got at the start that were really wonderful. Of let other people read it for a while and, and take your <laughs> and and take and take your eyes off it. Um, but then the other thing uh, that I think um, I was sort of gesturing toward in that section of the acknowledgments was uh, it's one thing to have uh, a word document and uh, a lot of um, words on your computer, um, but there's there's a whole other skill set and knowledge about. Uh, finding reviewers and shepherding through um, the page proof process and the design and the illustrations and all these things that um, could have been, I think, very stressful um, as you're sort of uh, trying to get your, your product out into the world. But um, I was really thankful and grateful for, for the editorial team at Columbia for uh, how patiently and calmly they stewarded me through that process because um yeah i could have i could have had the most amazing uh, uh word document on my computer but without, <laughs> their, with, without their help it wouldn't have been a book that you could read um so uh just really thankful for all the people who uh invested their time and energy uh into making this product um bringing it from dissertation uh to book mm-hmm I love what I loved in particular by your answer there is in thinking about, you know, the the move, the the move from someone writing a dissertation and beyond, or even someone who's sort of in their middle years of the dissertation process, in which it feels very lonely and very alone, mm. and it's just you. Yeah. <laughs> and what you're sort of gesturing yeah. towards is after that, it actually is very much more about reaching out and hearing from other people and other, you know, having, you know, trusting other people to do their, their, what they're good at, <laughs> whether it is yeah. reading your work or editing it and helping you move it along. Um, yeah, much more absolutely. of a collaborative process after that, which is great to hear <laughs> of, of the beyond. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So thank you for that. Why don't we turn then to the, this book in question, now that it is a book, not just a word document, um, <laughs> Learning to Rule. So you explain in the introduction that this book explores the ways in which from the precarious days of the 1861 coup that brought Empress Dowager Sissi to power through the early 20th century constitutional reform movement, the presence of young children on the throne suggested to Chinese scholars, Manchu officials, the domestic press and foreign powers that the battle for China's future could be in part fought from inside the emperor's classroom. 
So your book then is really about this fight, about how court education, the education of the emperor provides a new window on some of the intellectual trends of the late Qing. So ideas around Western learning, what would become of the Manchu way, the place of women, constitutionalism, and you know so much more. Um, so, and it is with that specifically about the late Qing. So you really do provide a fascinating look on this late post Taiping Qing period. Um, and you're continually drawing through this, the parallels between how the Qing court saw and tried to redraw itself and how other imperial states are all doing the same thing at around the same time. Yeah. But zooming out a little bit, um, could you sort of situate all of this for listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to read the book? What is court education? What does it entail? And why was it so important in the late Qing specifically? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question um, because, you know, on, on, one, on one level, I could give you a very short answer that court education is what should the emperor learn and who should teach him? Um, and that's a big part uh, of the story um, as the Qing and court officials are trying to rebuild our um, uh, playing around with different reform movements. Uh, to what degree should these new ideas, these new texts make their way into the emperor's education? And what should he know? What should he learn? Um, but zooming out from that, court education is also this much larger matrix of a sort of balance of power between scholars and officials and the emperor himself in the very long duration of Chinese history. Um, it stretches back to the Song Dynasty and scholars like Cheng Yi and Zhu Xi who say, look, the emperor is not by birth or naturally virtuous or wise or um, uh, knowing how to rule, and he needs to be taught those things. Um, and so they are, those scholars are arguing for their role in the state that uh, we should have the obligation, we should have not the, the obligation, well, we have the obligation, but we have the responsibility and the right uh, to participate in governance, um, in the ruling of the country via our tutoring of the emperor. We should tell him uh, uh, how much tax to levy. We should tell him uh, what uh, to, to ask uh, in the civil exams. We should tell him uh, what virtues to promote. Um, and so court education is what should the emperor learn? Who should teach him? Um, but also how scholars and officials imagine their participation inside of the state and their contributions to ruling and their own power. Um, so it's about the emperor, uh, but it's really also about um, the scholars who see their role in governing the empire um, as critical to its success um, and teaching the emperor, tutoring the emperor is just one of the uh, avenues uh, through which they sort of pursue that power and influence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned there, you know, the non, um, Juicy and others are pointing out <laughs> the emperor is not by birth virtuous. The emperor is not um, by birth, you know, knowing what to do and, you know, how to, how to think and, and whatnot, uh, which is perfect then for the first chapter, chapter one, mm -hmm. because in this, we definitely have an emperor who is not <laughs> by birth <laughs> knowing what to do. <laughs> Um, so chapter one opens with the death of the Xianfeng emperor and his five-year-old son is now emperor and this son needs to be educated. Um, and here, as I alluded to, there's, there's, there's some, that education is not a smooth process as you, as you explore in this chapter. Um, and much of the chapter then looks at the immense struggles over how the Tongzhi emperor should be educated. Um, so you look in particular at the fights between his Manchu teachers, his Chinese teachers, and those who want the emperor to focus on Western studies. Uh, so there's yeah. a lot of competing and conflicting interests here. And could you give us a sense of these different groups? What are, what are they trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So 
All of them are trying to stabilize the country and start the process of reconstruction and rebuilding. Right. This is mm-hmm. uh, a time. This is a time of tremendous crisis, both uh, of you know natural and man-made. We have uh, the Taiping Rebellion. We have uh, foreign imperialism. We have natural disasters, and the country is really sort of falling apart. Um, and in that moment of crisis, um, the fact that the Tongzhi emperor comes to the throne as a child, as someone who has not started um, his education, um, there are all of these scholars around the country who see that fact, that he is sort of a blank slate uh, as an opportunity um, to convince him of the appropriate way forward. Um, So how is the country going to be rebuilt? How is the country going to be stabilized? Is it going to be through uh, an investment in institutions of Western learning and uh, an emphasis on industrialization? Is it going to be through a redoubling of our sort of moral virtues and uh, famine relief? Or is it going to be through a sort of rediscovery of our uh, martial Manchu way and sort of a reinvigoration of those early values? All of these ideas about how to rebuild, how to stabilize, how to come out of this moment of crisis are present all throughout the bureaucracy. And the thing that Empress Dowager Sushi and her allies do is to invite all of those competing ideas into the emperor's classroom. They hire tutors, they employ tutors representative of each one of those different visions of uh, reform and rebuilding and give them time to convince the emperor that they're right, that uh, that the emperor should uh, focus on um, Western learning or the Manchu way or sort of Confucian morality as the path to rebuilding. Um, And what that does, I think, uh, in, in part, is take people who might have lost their interest or lost their desire to attempt this rebuilding process um, and turn away from the imperial center and toward their local communities. Because obviously we know in Chinese history, that's something that's been happening for a long time. People, the devolution of central power and the rise of, of sort of local affairs. But the fact that the emperor is this blank slate and that the Empress Dowager invites all of these competing interests to fight it out in his classroom and potentially win the day for their reform ideas for the entire empire, I think that helps uh, to sort of reinvigorate the idea of the imperial center, uh, even though, as you mentioned, it turns out that Tongzhi is a a terrible student and uh, (laughs) not even... Not, not even the best teacher could, uh, could have <laughs> captured his attention. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite parts of this chapter is the, the, the different um, ways in which the different tutors are trying to one-up each other. I mean, one of my favorite <laughs> moments is the discussion of the Manchu tutors sort of, oh, oh, our class ran a little long. Oh, oh, yes. how, how, how foolish, how foolish yeah. of us. Um, how, oh, it's absolutely terrible, which I'm sure is a a trick that many, many have tried. Um, yes. So yes. I love that in particular, but the other piece yeah. was, as you mentioned, as, and as I've been alluding to now, the fact that the Tongzhi emperor really is not a very good student. At least that's the sense you get from the sources that you're using. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it seems that he he's quite lazy. He's a little rather inattentive. He likes archery sometimes, but really yeah. is hopeless when it comes to poetry. Um, so, yeah. and I'm wondering, Could you talk a little bit about the sources that you're drawing on for this? You know, how did you come to realize that the Tongzhi emperor is not a good student? Because that's not something, especially after his death, that many are willing to sort of talk about. So how, how did, what are the sources that you're drawing on and how do you sort of get that picture of him in particular, but any of the other emperors as well? Yeah, it's a great question because, uh, as you allude to, the sources that are produced after his death uh, talk about him in quite glowing terms. Um, 
And so, you know, may, I, I don't know why, but I feel the need to momentarily defend him. You know, he's a kid, you know, let's, uh, <laughs> he, is, he, he is, he is, he is just a kid. I don't know uh, how many of us would have been uh, so interested in, you know, 12 hour school days starting at 5 a.m. <laughs> um, when, when, when we were seven, eight, nine years old. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a really interesting question of, of, so how do I get this image? Um, and it really comes from sort of two different categories of sources. The first are um, memorials by basically all of his tutors um, complaining about each other, complaining that he's not making progress in subject X, he's not making progress in subject Y. Uh, when I show up uh, to class, um, to you know, to the to the classroom, uh, he's already too tired out from what the teacher before me was trying to do, and so he doesn't pay attention. Um, so the, tu the the tutors, the teachers are complaining about each other a lot. Um, but within those complaints, um, you get a, a large sense that um, in none of the sessions uh, was he sort of particularly attentive or um, uh, particularly uh, stellar in his performance. Um, but then the other sort of the other category and the the source where a lot of the more fun anecdotes come from, because obviously in in memorials the the tutors are going to be um, a little cautious in in how they are speaking, how they're speaking of the emperor. Um, mm -hmm. So the other major category of sources is. Uh, and it's really one source, um, but it's the diary of one of the main tutors, uh, Wung Tonghe, who is tutor to both Tongzhi and then to Guangxu um, and will um, play a major role in court education and at court for uh, many, many decades until he is um, sort of uh, kicked out of power after the 1898 reform movement. Um, and he has a diary um, that records all of these things in amazing and colorful um, and really humanizing detail. Um, so he, Wong talks about um, uh, Tongzhi's struggles to write poetry, um, but he also then talks about his own struggles. He talks about being nervous. He talks about um, being drenched with sweat at the end of a class session. Um, and it's this incredibly human and humanizing source um, that I use throughout the throughout the book in in almost every chapter, um, uh, because the the richness of its detail, because of the ways in which it humanizes these uh, these perhaps otherwise. Um, uh, these characters who who might seem uh, other, but they really are in many ways um, like us in this world, trying to get our students uh, to focus on their studies while they are distracted by many, many things. Um, and the source uh, is particularly meaningful to me because I had uh, the great fortune to meet uh, with one of Wung's uh, descendants uh, before he passed, um, before the descendant uh, passed away. Um, obviously, Wung died uh, long before this project began, um, but but um, his descendant who lived in New Hampshire for many years um, was incredibly kind and gracious in mm. showing me in showing me different editions and versions um, of the diary, um, not just the the published ones that are available. Um, before he then uh, donated the original manuscripts back to the the Shanghai Library a few years ago, so. Um, that that source is is really meaningful to me, um, both in the production of the book, um, but then also thinking about thinking back about the process and mm -hmm. um, just remembering that that these were these were people um, who were trying to do their best in um, a really really difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and then who wrote? You know, <laughs> I get also then people who wrote, and then their descendants who kept the diaries or, or yeah. you know, were aware yeah. of them. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking of, you know, the people, um, and you mentioned there, and you're absolutely right, the Tongzhi Emperor was very small, and he's, he's uh, <laughs> was very young, and he definitely, um, some of the descriptions of the classes, I would probably have struggled as a, as a young <laughs> child to, to pay attention to those. Um, I did feel for him when his brush stroke is, his brush work is being critiqued as well. Yes, yes. Um, but he is, um, you know, overall... He doesn't, um, you know, he his, his for all of his tutoring and all of his lessons, he does not um, emerge an emperor who engenders a lot of support from the bureaucracy, right? And so when he does eventually take personal power, it doesn't seem that he's very, you know, he's not particularly 
um, position to 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 get what he wanted done. Um, and in any event, he dies quite young in 1875 due to smallpox. So then we have another young emperor, as you mentioned, the Guangxu Emperor. Um, and this is again a period of female regency. Um, and again, the imperial classroom is a very important space and place. Um, but in many ways, this does seem to be a chance to try again, because it's a different emperor um, who seems to be going about education a little bit differently. Um, I wonder, wonder if you could say anything about that. What are some of the, you know, the differences um, that, that come about when the Guangxu emperor is, is the one being educated? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because um, one of the things that stands out uh, from Wung's diary and and from other sources would, was just that sort of temperamentally, the Guangxu emperor seemed to be different uh, than the Tongzhi emperor. He seemed to be more interested in his studies. He seemed to have more um, a facility for them. Um, but at but again, the uh, the idea here is. For me, in 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 thinking about the 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 book and the chapter, why do people still care? Mm -hmm. um, I I I had gone into this uh, project sort of probably like like most students of of late Qing history, not paying much attention to uh, the emperors. Um, in the late Qing period, and and I was sort of continually surprised by how much attention the bureaucracy and now in the Guangxu period, the press was paying uh, to his education. And so part of the story of this chapter and in his early years is that he seems to be a better student uh, and that excites people uh, that maybe he would be a more effective um, emperor. Um, but the other component of it um, that sort of emerged uh, in the first couple of chapters is that Sometimes when the tutors and the people are talking uh, about the emperor's education, they're interested in the emperor's education in the sense of, well, he has to be able to read memorials and he has to be able uh, to direct the bureaucracy that being well-educated is important for his sort of functional role within the bureaucracy. But at other times, they're talking about the emperor and the importance of his education and him being a good student for the ways in which that might set an example to mm -hmm. the country and to the rest of the bureaucracy to sort of inspire everyone else to, to study and learn and then help in sort of the reconstruction of the country um, in that way. And that's one of the things that really stands out in the early years of, of, of Guangxu's reign is that he seems to be a better student in the classroom, which would be wonderful for, again, his sort of functional role within the bureaucracy when he came to power. But people are also seemingly really excited by the model that he appears to be setting of being interested and inquisitive and therefore sort of legitimizing others around the country uh, to pursue new fields of learning. Mm -hmm. And one of the new fields is language. Um, and you yeah. mentioned that the idea of a multilingual emperor is not a new one. Um, so yeah. the Guangxu emperor himself and you know, emperors before him would speak Manchu and receive lessons in Mongolian. But now <laughs> the press in particular, <laughs> the now in particular, the yeah. press in particular is talking about English. And this really comes yeah to a head in chapter three, which opens really beautifully with two men passing through the <laughs> gates of the Imperial city in 1891. They have come to be the emperor's teachers. The first in Chinese history to instruct <laughs> the, the son of heaven in English. And as you explain in this, this part of the chapter, the international press is intensely interested in his English language instruction and what it thinks um, that it that these that these lessons signify, um, and I wonder if you wanted to say anything more about the English language in particular, and how that suddenly becomes such an important um, focal point for the Guangxu Emperor, but also the press in particular. Yeah, you know, it's this really interesting uh, episode um, in the sense that, as, as you started out, it's it's on one level not that big a deal. Qing emperors mm -hmm. are are multilingual. They learn all the languages of their empire. So, um, you know, what's what's all the fuss about uh, <laughs> if now if 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 now an emperor is going to learn English as well? Um, but I think to understand the 
sort of enthusiasm uh, that the news of his English lessons in the, eight, in the early 1890s is received, we actually have to zoom back to the, the start of his education in the mm -hmm. previous chapter, um, that when he, when he first starts his education, one of the first things that the press, uh, mostly in Shanghai, um, but also in London and New York and Tokyo, um, one of the things that they suggest is that if the emperor could learn English, that would enable him to sidestep the bureaucracy and personally engage in international affairs and negotiations um, with foreign powers. And what this is drawing on is this very prevalent idea in the international sort of uh, world, but also um, sort of new intellectuals in treaty ports in places like Shanghai who are writing in the press. This idea that the Qing bureaucracy is conservative and obstructing change and reform and that if only the emperor could break out from the shackles of that conservative bureaucracy, then China would be able to reform in the ways that it needed in order to sort of regain its strength. So in that sense, English is a tool of international relations and diplomacy, but also a tool uh, for the emperor to uh, uh, cut down the power of the bureaucracy and the officials surrounding him. Um, and that's where the excitement uh, by, from the press and the missionary community and, and all these other outside observers come in when uh, Guangxu does uh, start studying English in the early 1890s, because essentially they see this um, as him casting aside uh, people who in the minds of writers in the press are more conservative and obstructing reform. And now the emperor won't need them anymore because he'll be able to deal one-on-one <laughs> -on -one with foreign leaders. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's about English a little bit, but it's really more about um, power and the way in which the press was uh, frustrated by the bureaucracy's supposed conservatism. Mm -hmm. You mentioned there, you know, new intellectuals, bureaucracy, and you know, being con being um, constrained by them, um, and you know, new ideas. The emperor, you know, pushing past, and all of this continues to be really relevant. Then in the chapters, um, even as the English lessons come to an end, because they do. Mm. Yes, <laughs> and, they, and do. <laughs> they do. They uh, do. They come. They come to an end when the Sino-Japanese War breaks out, um, and you sort of follow this discussion and these debates um, after the war, um, which, which China lost, and where you have reformers arguing that the country's future is actually in the hands of the emperor. That to strengthen China, the emperor needs to embrace new forms of education. So here you're sort of looking at slightly different or at least differently orientated, maybe um, scholars who are you know, mm. a little bit more reform minded, but they're still thinking of the emperor and looking at the emperor and his education. Um, so could you give us a sense of how these men wanted to use educational reforms to gain influence over the emperor and to, you know, to save China in this way through this path? Yeah, you know, and and so this part of the story has a lot of familiar cast of characters mm -hmm. to 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 any student of of Lei Qing history. So people like Kang Youwei, people like Liang Qichao, people like Yan Fu. Um, one of the really interesting things that all of them actually, um, and and Zhang Zhidong as as well, um, that they all suggest um, that the thing that the emperor needs to do to help save the country essentially at this point is to study abroad mm -hmm. um to learn from foreign countries to learn from foreign models um and they have lots of uh examples of world leaders doing this that they point to so all all of these uh writers all of these intellectuals really love the example of peter the great and his mm -hmm. tours um but one, I think the thing that is starting to happen more uh, in this moment than, than sort of previous um, iterations of, these, of the discussions in the 1860s, 70s, um, and 80s is the idea that these studies and these tours um, are important for the emperor's own personal edification. And yes, he can learn um, important new skills that he can deploy, but more so 
especially people like Kang Youwei and, and Liang Qichao, are arguing that the the emperor the emperor simply doing this, simply studying abroad, would inspire mm-hmm. great change and legitimize millions of other people around the country to do the same. And so the late 1890s, the sort of uh, 1898 reform movement, um, this era is really a, a moment where the emperor as symbol mm-hmm. for, for what China should be or could be gains a really uh, strong foothold in discussions of the emperor's education. Um, that for China to be a sort of sovereign member of the global community and a, and sort of a, a, a powerful country, the emperor has to embrace these sort of modern forms of learning that the Meiji emperor did. This is all sort of what people like Kang Youwei and Liang mm-hmm. Qichao are, are, are saying. This is you know, not necessarily how things happened in those other countries, but this is their, right? This is their discourse. This is their discussion that for China to be strong, the emperor needs to set the model of embracing Western and learning and global uh, education. And so studying abroad um, is uh, one part of the larger project of trying to legitimate new forms of learning all around the country, but also elevating the emperor as symbol of sort of a hybrid uh, Chinese and Western uh, learning as a, as a model for the future. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about this as sort of the, the symbol of the hybrid future, the, the very forward or outward, at least maybe in, in particular, sort of looking symbol of the emperor that is sort of mm. that, that he's taking on or they want him to take on that sort of guise. Um, because we come then to see one way in which that is almost realized, not not as Kang Youwei intended, uh, but in chapter four, I suppose, where mm. we have um, the Empress Dowager Cixi. And you mentioned, you know, this is a familiar cast of characters and there is a familiar sort of story that's playing on, not so much in the background, it's very important, but there is a familiar story here of the Guangxu Emperor is sort of made redundant. <laughs> so she <laughs> takes control and then she embarks on, as you as you um, call it in a, a, a subheading here, a gendered charm offensive, which I love. <laughs> Um, to remake the emperorship. And this is what chapter four is devoted to. So there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot going on here. You have Sisi participating in the global community. You have foreign observers brought in. You talk about painting and portraiture and photographs and the importance of female education and plans for schools for women and plans yeah. for schools that might even include non, non-elite or the elite of the elite women, which is fascinating. <laughs> Um, so as I said, there's a lot here, and so she she appears in the earlier chapters as well. But is there anything in particular that you want to highlight here about her role? Any sort of you know, if you if you were to know only one thing about Chapter Four, um, what what would you say it is? Oh wow, that's a that's a very hard <laughs> question. Um, I, I think for me, the story of Chapter Four is really the the story of the Qing and Sushi in that sense participating in a real global process mm-hmm. of sort of of remaking empires into constitutional monarchies mm-hmm. and and nation states um and so female education um is um a sort of a large part of sort of emerging discourses of national strength uh, around the turn of the 20th century constitutional monarchies as well. Um, and so in an attempt to strengthen and save and, and remake the Qing, um, so she participates in, in this process of trying to transform the Qing into mm-hmm. a constitutional monarchy and trying to support uh, female education, particularly for members of the imperial elite. Um, and that's not to say that Sushi was a hero or a <laughs> villain. Um, I, I, I mean, I think it's there are obviously a, a lot of books and a lot of stories that uh, like to paint her as either one of those things. Um, 
And I, I hope that the chapter does neither because mm-hmm. I think really what I'm trying to get at is to bring late Qing efforts at state making and reform into this global conversation and this global process um, and um, discussions of sort of, um, you know, sort of an, an old discussion of the sincerity of Qing reforms and making of the constitution and these things, um, I think sort of misses the point um, mm-hmm. that what Sushi is doing um, is bringing the Qing into a global conversation and a global process of remaking older imperial forms for a new era. Um, and two of the major components of that new form happen to be constitutionalism and widespread female education. Um, mm-hmm. And so that so the Qing are just active participants in that process. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely what comes what comes through, not a not a, you know, um, as you mentioned, there have been many different portraits of, yeah. of Tsushi painted with words, I mean, um, that, would, yes. that would depict I, her in, in very simplified terms. And I, that is yeah. definitely not what emerges here. Um, she's trying many different things. She's quite a complicated figure um, um, throughout this book. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know your your mention of portraitures and is is mm. telling though because <laughs> in in this chapter one of the things that I do discuss is well who are so she's who are her allies mm-hmm. in this project and the reason why I talk about sort of the gender charm offenses tra- charm sorry the gendered charm offensive um, is because of a lot of her allies in uh, this project and the people she targets um, are the women of the foreign legation. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite famously, an American painter uh, paints uh, a portrait of of Tsushi for exhibition at the the 1904 St. Louis exhibition, and and the the image of Tsushi in the writings of these women stands in stark contrast mm-hmm. to the image of Tsushi in the writings of people like Kang Youwei and Liang Qichao, and I don't think we have to accept either of those. Mm-hmm. Um, as fact, but um, I did try to um, at least bring uh, the voices of of her allies into this to to think about sort of the reception of her efforts and the reception of uh, this project to to remake the Qing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And on the topic of remaking the Qing, um, this sort of brings us to this is chapter five, where mm. which is really where we see this project of remaking empire into a constitutional monarchy sort of reach its um, most, I guess, educated form, I suppose, or it, <laughs> it, 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 it tries to mold the Shantong emperor into yes. a constitutional monarch and symbol of the nation. Um, yeah. But in chapter five is sort of where we see this play out. Um, and again, as with as in all of the other um, processes of educating a very young emperor, we see disagreements, disagreements over who um, the Xuantong emperor's tutors should be, disagreements over the curriculum, over what languages he should learn, um, disagreements over who should participate in the emperor's education. And this is the piece that I wanted to sort of touch on is because you you delve into a, a discussion, a debate that's ongoing here about who the emperor's classmates should be. Um, what kind of background they should have. Um, and I wonder if you could unpack this a little bit. Who is, who is being proposed as a, as a, as a, I don't want to say friend, but as a classmate now? <laughs> um, and, and sort of why? What, what, does, what do the different proposals really tell us about this moment and where court education has sort of come? Yeah, so, so this is uh, one of the elements of sort of the late Qing uh, court education that draws on much older practices mm-hmm. and ideals that um, princes uh, um, used to have classmates, they were called bandu, like accompanying readers, accompanying students, um, who would go along in their studies with them. Um, and traditionally, they were members of the imperial family. Um, you know, members of the imperial family who were not eligible uh, for the throne or um, uh, you know, uh, members of at least uh, um, sort of the upper banners. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, some of Xuantong's tutors suggest is that that was appropriate for earlier eras where the job of the emperor was 
to be the head of the imperial family and the commander of the banners. But if the emperor is now going to be the head of a constitutional monarchy and sort of symbol of the people, well, then maybe his classmates should be the people. And so there are these proposals from some of his tutors uh, that instead of his classmates being just members of, uh, you know, the imperial family or the upper banners, that they should come from all the provinces of the mm -hmm. empire and that they should rotate through so that the emperor is exposed to people from all over his country, to the languages and the dialects from all over his country, so that he would know his people. Um, and this is, again, an idea that these tutors and scholars who are proposing this are getting from the world. They're getting this mm -hmm. from looking at the education of other imperial leaders all across the world, um, from Germany, from the Middle East, from, from Japan, um, where this is what's being done, that uh, future leaders are either being sent to school with commoners or uh, commoners are being brought into imperial classrooms to expose uh, the leaders, the, the future emperors, the future rulers to, as, as one person put it, the, the thoughts and feelings uh, mm. of the people that they would one day rule. But it's also uh, an idea that they're getting from earlier moments in Chinese history um, where uh, the palace school and these other uh, institutions uh, were more open and brought in, not necessarily what what uh, we would call common people, but a broader range of scholars into the imperial classroom. So in all of these proposals, what the emperor should study, who should be his teachers, who should be his, uh, his classmates, you really get this mix, this hybrid of mm -hmm. pro proposals and inspirations that are drawn both from traditional Chinese practices and, and early Qing history, but also sort of global statecraft and global educational norms. Um, and I think that really is um, sort of the heart of the story of the, really the last few chapters of the attempt to create this hybrid model of education, this hybrid symbol of uh, the new empire, the new constitutional monarchy that they're trying to build in the person of first Guangxu and then uh, briefly at the end, uh, the Xuantong emperor. Very briefly, but yeah, as, as very said, briefly, very briefly, very, very briefly. He was not quite fully educated by the by no. the time the Qing ends, or indeed, you know, the um, yeah, the the chapter ends in in here. Uh, but as you were talking about, you know, the hybridity, the looking back while looking forward, that actually takes us really beautifully to the conclusion where you look mm. at the post-imperial use of the emperor by revolutionaries. Um, mm. And you say in this part of the book that various projects suggest that the figure of the emperor played a larger role in the politics of post-Qing regimes than usually understood. And you open the conclusion um, by looking at, um, in particular, some revolutionaries who are drawing on the legacies or the, the tombs, the names, the figures of Ming emperors. So here we have a very clear, you know, backward and forward looking <laughs> um, use and return to the emperor. Um, so could you explain the significance of this? You know, not so much actually to the revolutionaries, but in how we think of this period. Why is it important for us, I suppose, to keep in mind when we look at the Qing or you know, the end of the Qing or the Qing Republican transition? How, how is this sort of a significant um, piece of that? It's a really great question. Um, I mean, I think in one sense, the importance is to remind ourselves that the revolution, you know, mm -hmm. 1911 and, and, and 1912 is not nearly as stark a divide as many of the revolutionaries themselves would <laughs> uh, have, have, have wanted us to believe. And, mm -hmm. you know, this, this, this is a, a, a sort of major new thrust in, in scholarship on late 19th, early 20th century, thinking about the institutional um, consequences of late Qing reforms for later uh, state building efforts, right? A lot of a lot of great new work on um, the the ways in which the the institutions and the reforms that were started in the late Qing, you know, they obviously don't save the mm -hmm. Qing, 
but they play really formative and productive roles in the construction of a modern China in the decades to come. Um, and that insight is only sort of only becomes visible to us if we uh, think of 1911 not as a, uh, a hard barrier, but mm -hmm. rather as um, as something that uh, both institutions, but in this case, ideas were able to, uh, to transverse. Um, and I think for me in, in the conclusion, um, the thing that's important is the emperor as stand in for the center and for unity. So mm -hmm. one, one of the major themes over the course of the, the, you know, the body chapters of the book is the person of the emperor is not necessarily important. And uh, many of the scholars and intellectuals participating in his education don't necessarily want him to be all powerful or mm -hmm. autocratic, but there is a desire for a renewed center um, something that can pull all of uh, the provinces and all of the people who seem to be sort of fading away in their own direction, something that can pull them back together. Mm -hmm. um, and so the figure of the emperor and the idea of the emperor gets sort of transformed in the in the post-imperial era into the idea of the importance of a central or national capital and leader, someone who is visible, someone who is seen, and someone who represents the values and the ideals of what we want this community, this polity to be moving forward, mm -hmm. right? So why, so why is it important in some people's mind for a late Qing emperor to learn English? Because that represents worldliness and cosmopolitan and connection to the global community. And so what are the qualities that we're going to look for in a post-imperial leader, someone who can um, be a representative of the values that we are trying to communicate, that we share as a people? Um, and so I think this idea of the importance of a central figure who can unify and unite disparate communities mm -hmm. um, is something that stay, that that is very strong uh, mm -hmm. throughout the 20th century. And again, not this is not necessarily a, a Chinese story that mm -hmm. what what I mean by that is that the importance of these sort of central figures, be it the constitutional monarchy or the national leaders, um, is a is is really a story of China participating in modern forms of state making and the construction of national identities. Um, a lot of the the rituals that are designed around Shentong's education moving forward are explicitly modeled on British ones. That mm -hmm. um, the the continued uh, importance of the emperor uh, in late Qing history and in, and even then in the 20th century, um, is really a story of China participating in sort of modern processes of global state making. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so in one, in that sense, shouldn't be surprising. Definitely not. And I mean, you're talking about, um, ideas transversing and values transversing, and there's even a little bit of people transversing this sort of 1911, yeah. 1912 moment in that you sort of oh, follow yeah. the Xuantong emperor, no longer emperor <laughs> or in quite the same <laughs> way. Um, now, now just please, you sort of follow him, him through the end of the conclusion. And it sort of finally ends with his final education, if you like, um, yeah. <laughs> But with that, we, as we follow him um, being re-educated, we come to the end of your book and the end of our conversation then. Mm. Uh, and I'm left with the, the, my last question for you, which is now that you have finished this book, what are you working on now? What is inspiring you at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. Um... So I'm working on on sort of two projects um, at the moment that are really both in some sense about this question of 
what happens to these institutions and these ideas mm-hmm. um, across the 1911 divide, but really across sort of the, the early part of the 20th century. Um, so the first uh, is a project about the last class of civil service examination candidates. Um, mm-hmm. right? So the, 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 the last civil service exam is in 1904. Uh, you have about 300 people who uh, earn the Jinsha degree there. Um, and then by the next year, their uh, degrees, their credentials, and really a lot of their classical education is devalued um, when the the exams are abrogated. And then obviously just a few years later, the the Qing falls. And so I'm curious about what happens to those people. How do they think about living in this new world, this new intellectual world, Mm -hmm. this new political world, um, but then also this new um, sort of world of knowledge where they are uh, having to translate their ideas into these new genres of uh, the national press or uh, school textbooks in the national school system. So I'm really interested in what happens to those people um, whose lives uh, and sort of trajectories are upended uh, when the civil service exams um, are themselves ended. And then the other project um, really uh, stems directly from from the first book. Um, So in the last chapter, in chapter five, I have an image of um, celebrations for Mm -hmm, the Shrentong for, for the Shrentong Emperor's first day of school. Um, and this is one of the reforms um, in, in sort of the last iteration of, of court education where um, the, the Qing court makes the emperor's first day of school a national holiday. So students all across the new uh, national uh, school system uh, stop their classes, they sing songs in unison, they bow in the direction uh, of Beijing um, to celebrate the emperor's first day of school as a real moment of unity uh, and nationalism uh, all around the country. So I have an image of um, some school children um, sort of being, uh, it's a cartoon uh, published Mm -hmm. at the time, um, uh, sort of parading through Beijing, beating drums and waving Qing flags. Um, And when I saw that Mm -hmm. image uh, in in the periodical that I was reading in Shanghai, um, I was struck by how closely it resembled images from Republican era textbooks about school rituals, mm-hmm. um, flag ceremonies and all of these things um, that lots of wonderful scholars have, have shown were really, <laughs> um, played a really key role in the production of national identity in the Republican period. And so that really got me interested in reforms to late Qing rituals and the roles that they played in uh, sort of state-making efforts uh, by the Qing court. Um, and so on, I'm now working on a project that is going to look at um, a couple different types of uh, court rituals, particularly I'm going to look at weddings and funerals um, and the ways in which those rituals and those events were transformed in the post-typing period from uh, sort of private affairs of the imperial family and the court to really public moments of both celebration and mourning uh, that became really intertwined with the Qing's uh, international relations, uh, inviting foreign participants into these events, uh, but then also their the Qing project of essentially trying to create a nation out of an empire um, mm-hmm. of, of teaching students and teaching people all across the country how to think about the imperial family and the relationship of the emperor to the people through reforms to these rituals. Um, So those are the two uh, that I'm working on um, and sort of born in different ways from, uh, from the things that I was thinking about as I was wrapping up the book. Mm -hmm. I think there's a line in this book where you're describing that cartoon and you say something like it would not have seemed out of place in a Republican um, publication. Yeah. particular yeah. if I remember and it definitely definitely does um publication it does I I had to look a couple times at it uh even though I was reading the periodical and mm-hmm. I saw the the date that it was published and I knew it was uh the 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 thing I was writing about with the start of Shuentong's education which is uh you know we we mentioned we mentioned sort of offhand that this the last chapter uh has a very mm-hmm 
has a very short chronology uh, in the sense that the the Xuantong Emperor starts his first day of school a month before the revolution mm -hmm. starts. Uh, um, but 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 so this the, these moments of celebrating his first day of school really are um, what turn out to be the Qing court's last attempt uh, to sort of inculcate these feelings of unity and pride um, in the emperor. And obviously it doesn't work, um, but I was really struck and I had to look at the image a couple of times to make sure, wait, it, is this from 1927? <laughs> when, when is this from? No, no, it's it's 1911. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I mean, it definitely speaks to then the, the continuities acro across the divide and the the um, continued importance of some of these questions and the unfinished product, uh, unfinished project of you know making a nation out of an empire. Um, those sound like fascinating projects, and the very best of luck. Um, Thank you. And, Thank you. And um, all you know, all the good um, hopes for the research and the writing of that. Um, and thank, thank you. you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this book. Um, I hope that your next projects end up um, in the forms that best suits them and the, makes the most sense. And if they end up as a book, <laughs> do come back and <laughs> talk about those. Well, thank you so much for, for having me, for uh, your uh, really insightful reading uh, of the book. And it was, it was a, a real pleasure to return to it uh, in this form and, and to talk to you today. Thank you so much.